welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Alley. To me, Toronto is a city of subcultures. Now, I haven't lived here all my life, but most of it's been here. And I've grown and seen and tasted and experienced a lot, I guess. Enough to make me say that it's home. And I don't say that lightly. The city's seen me at my best and at my worst, and when I've been happiest and my lowest, really. It's seen me be stupid and like learning to be smart about things. And it's just seen me grow a lot in ways that I don't think I've realized very much. I've had lots of different jobs over time. I've like worked at a drive-through window at Tim Hortons doing 6 a.m. shifts. And I've worked in places where it made me feel like I was literally on top of the world for a minute until I kind of float back down to reality and realize that, I guess despite the rush of what feels like, everyone just trying to like run around and <laughs> make their life happen, what really matters isn't that far away. And it takes a little bit of perspective to recognize that. I'm really lucky to have family nearby because that's not something that a lot of Filipino people who live in the greater Toronto area can say if we're talking about someone that you're related to. This city is vast. There's over 3 million people who live here. And 6% of those people identify as being of Filipino descent. That's according to the last census in 2016. That's around 255,000 people. That's like a quarter of a million. Filipino people are the fourth largest group of visible minorities in the city of Toronto. And if we're talking about the suburbs like Mississauga, Brampton, the Peel region, it's not that difficult to find Filipino people <laughs> when you drive around those areas. Like even just keeping an eye for restaurants and I don't know, pop-up shops online that cater to that demographic, you really get a sense of the fact that we're just here. And it's wild because it's also important to remember that a lot of us come from vastly different regions of the Philippines. We don't all come from Manila, and we speak a lot of different languages. I don't know most of them, <laughs> frankly. I only speak Tagalog. And with that regionality comes an immense variety of foods, whether pre-made or, you know, stuff that you make from scratch. And those kinds of things honestly are mostly enjoyed at home, but also increasingly at restaurants and other kinds of kitchens, um, especially these days. And I don't know, I guess it's that culture of knowing that you gotta speak up if you want to be heard or like that drive that some people have to get it 
because you want it. Like, I identify with that so much, and I know that other people do too. That determination with a little bit of softness <laughs> that keeps it real and keeps it close, I don't know, that just means Toronto to me. And I've had a bit of hesitation with doing this episode simply because, I'm not going to lie, at the heart of the pandemic, um, something happened personally and I just felt that, I don't know, I just felt that everything that I had worked for and everything that meant something to me just was taken away, um, not physically, but mentally and emotionally <laughs> it's a whole other thing but yeah this uh this city's got its spikes deep in me but this episode isn't just about my personal relationship with the city i guess in a sense i found some of my experiences reflected in those of other people and that's what i look forward to sharing with you today so we're going to talk about belonging and why feeling like you can be yourself at home, why that matters. It's about identity and recognizing and really vocalizing that all of our stories are different and that they bring value to the places we live in, to our cities. And honestly, that I feel like we just don't talk to the people around us anywhere near often enough. It's really just made me realize that there is a lot to explore in our backyard. And this idea of placemaking, of how food is such an integral part of our society, of our culture, and of our continuing cultures that we build and that we've inherited, it shapes each of us every day. And I guess I've come to appreciate specific things that make Filipino food in Toronto a genuine part of the city's taste of place. Today you'll hear from five people who belong to the diaspora of people originally from the Philippines. There's Mila, who arrived as a child in St. Thomas, Ontario in the 1960s. There's Isabel, Shannon, Gabriel, and myself. We're all first to second generation immigrants whose families arrived in Canada in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I arrived in 2007, and John Paul, who we're also speaking to, got here shortly after. We all live across the GTA and all feel this desire to just share what we're also learning ourselves about the breadth of Philippine cuisine. And these are just five stories. There are so many more from so many other cultures that are like layered to make this like sky-high crepe that just encapsulates everything there is to love and learn about Toronto. And at the moment, I know a lot of us are realizing and really taking the time to learn about those histories and what is in the place that we live in. And you can't untie the history of a land with the history of its food, because everything that we eat, it comes from the land and the waters around us. and even though admittedly, much of what I eat comes from the grocery store today, a good amount of what I do eat, like fruit and vegetables, those are things that are grown nearby. Any part of Canada or the US originally belonged to a group of indigenous peoples, and for the most part, the white men won the land. 
with succeeding waves of migrants that takes us up to today basically becoming settlers who continue to live off that same land. As an immigrant and as a settler on these lands, on Turtle Island, this place has been shared with us by indigenous peoples whose own stories have gone unheard for so long. And I feel a sense of gratitude for being here and solidarity with the many other people, settler cultures really, who are now realizing the enormity of our need to listen and understand how the colonists who settled early Canada brought this incredible change and trauma into the lives of the peoples who already lived here. That carries into today and realizing how that colonial culture sought out to destroy what was already there. That way of thinking, that colonial mindset has caused so much hurt and so much pain and Honestly, it feels real and personal, and I don't mean to take away from anyone's experience by saying that. I'm just saying that there are ways for us to relate to these types of situations. And so I encourage you to learn more about the Indigenous history of Canada, including its residential schools, because we do have to hear the truth. It can be difficult knowing what to do with this information sometimes, but... I do find that learning is the first step. I'll have some links in the show notes to some articles and organizations to help me learn a lot, too, about Indigenous cultures and about the 94 Calls to Action. That's from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and definitely something I recommend reading about. All of this comes into play when we talk about land acknowledgements. And... I want to share what the City of Toronto has in its guidance document, because that helped me put things in perspective too. It says, when a land acknowledgement is being given, staff and partners will pause, be present, reflect, and consider how to impact change in their work. This can include conscious thought on our place here, on these lands, and how colonization and the oppression of Indigenous persons is privileged some people over others. Indigenous people typically give thanks, appreciation, and respect for all in creation, including their ancestors, communities, other beings, clans, allied nations, and Mother Earth at the start of gathering ceremonies and events. For settler Canadians moving toward implementing this teaching, it's also about public acknowledgement of this respect towards the recognition of Indigenous peoples, practices, and ways of knowing. I acknowledge that the land that I live and work from today is on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 of the Mississaugas of the Credit. Back in February, an article called It Tasted Like My Childhood 
how a new generation is bringing Filipino flavors to Toronto came out in the Toronto Star, and it was a big deal, <laughs> as these things often are for us. The Toronto Star is the city's oldest newspaper, and when these kinds of stories about Filipino food and our community and cooking particularly get published, it really takes over your feet. And that's because it strikes a chord, I guess, and we all need these kinds of reasons to celebrate. Head to the show notes for a link to that article that's written by Isabel, who we're going to talk to next. Someone that I could also talk about food with for hours. Hi, my name is Isabel Docto. You can call me Izzy for short. I'm a journalist based in Toronto, and I'm currently an assistant editor at Chatelaine, which is a women's magazine here in Canada. A little bit about myself, I moved to Vancouver from the Philippines when I was four years old, um, and then I moved to Toronto about eight years ago in 2013 to go to Ryerson for journalism. So I'm not a Toronto native, but I have lived here for quite some time um, and have been able to see kind of the Filipino food scene grow, mostly downtown because I've never lived in the suburbs. I've written about Filipino food. Um, my latest thing was an article for the Toronto Star about the next generation of Filipino cooks and chefs kind of making their way here in the city. Um, and yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. My pleasure. And I'm really excited, um, well, A, to just have this chat with you and to, to get your perspectives because I like how you had mentioned that you're not a Toronto native, and so am I. <laughs> but something that I would like to share as well is really that in Toronto, more than half of the population is not native to the city. And I find that really interesting because um, I was pulling up some uh, demographic stats from the City of Toronto website this weekend. And um, from the census in 2016, I just want to share that um, the city of Toronto population was at 2.7 million residents. And that's just within the city, that's excluding the greater Toronto area. And of those closer to 3 million by now, I would say, 52% um, of the population belongs to visible minority group. Uh, people of Philippine descent are the fourth largest visible minority category. We're at um, 6%. And that, yeah, within that roughly 3 million um, mark in Toronto, 47% of those are people who have immigrated uh, into, into the area. So, yeah, I think it's like similar to New York where a lot of people from the suburbs or like other provinces kind of just congregate there. So I think that's what makes Toronto really cool. It's a very diverse city. The whole like, placemaking sort of um, idea and being able to, to see Filipino representation in the city in various ways, whether that's through food, through political representation, through arts and culture, that's a really big thing, I think. Um, I'd like to ask you, like, how do you feel when, for the, the star, for example, the, that uh, story you wrote? Yeah, I think it's, it's very exciting and fills me with a lot of pride <laughs> um, being kind of like a second generation. Well, I guess I would be considered first generation since I immigrated here with my parents, but 
Um, yeah, I was very young when I came here and in Vancouver, even though there may have been a larger um, Asian population, um, there were still very few, you know, Filipino restaurants when I was younger. Um, in the media, you know, Filipino people <laughs> weren't um, represented as much, um, you know, the representation of, you know, darker skinned Asian people is still lacking, I, I think, personally. And so to see now that, you know, uh, Filipino people have kind of taken their agency and are creating things for themselves and not waiting for people to, you know, kind of give them opportunities, although that would be great. <laughs> and obviously, like, you need that support. But just kind of seeing, especially here in Toronto and the community here, seeing people kind of take it on for themselves, whether in terms of food, whether it be like pop-ups, uh, starting small businesses on their own, uh, is really amazing to see. And it, it's really inspiring as well. That's kind of what fills me with like happiness, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Because honestly, just like being able to see that that come together is is such a it's such a gift almost because it's like well, it's a gift in that a as somebody who likes presents, I know that I can order something from a restaurant and it'll arrive at my door <laughs> in in our day and age, and it literally is like unwrapping a present um, because there is a lot of the buildup as well because you know that. A lot of these entrepreneurs, especially within the food space, are very good at storytelling. Um, they are able to tell the story of the food they're cooking, who they are. They are able to represent, you know, the Philippine communities that they're in or Philippine X communities that they're in. Um, so it's really exciting to kind of see all these different ways, as you were saying, that people are expressing their creativity. Um, in order to kind of really amplify um, our voices and our stories that way. Um, and I like how you touched on various ways of serving Philippine food. One of the questions that I wanted to ask is, um, of the Philippine-influenced you know, pop-ups <laughs> and businesses that you've tried, I wanted to ask in terms of the, the regionality of some of the foods that you've, you've seen or tasted, with Cucinera, for example, can you tell us a little bit about your interview with them? And yeah, so uh, the really cool thing about Cucinera, which is a Filipino pop-up restaurant by Keanu Francisco, who is a chef here in uh, a sous chef here in Toronto, he's a sous chef for Sara, which is a restaurant here in Toronto, is that you know what struck me when I interviewed him is that his goal was was to kind of move away from your typical sinigang adobo um, dishes, which those dishes are great. <laughs> sinigang is my favorite dish. <laughs> um, it's a comfort food, but like kind of highlighting the diversity in regions uh, in the Philippines because, you know, it's not just Metro Manila. There are 7,000, over 7,000 islands in the Philippines. There's going to be a, a, a like a variety of cuisines there and different influences. And so he kind of talked about, you know, making that a point in his pop-up and serving dishes like kare kare, but, but then, you know, add a twist to it. 
And then one of the dishes that he specifically spoke to me about was uh, Kuracha Alavar, which is a specialty from Zamboanga City. Um, and so it's made from spanner crabs and a sauce probably made of coconut milk and alige, which is crab fat. And I don't even think that's a dish that I've ever tried before or even heard of because I, I'm from Manila and even here, a lot of the dishes are your typical sisig, adobo, and sinigang. So I think definitely exploring those different regions and bringing awareness to them is great for Filipino people and non-Filipino people. And yeah, I think that's something that I haven't like quite seen yet from a lot of restaurants although obviously I haven't tried all Filipino restaurants here but I yeah I, I I really liked his his kind of goal to to make that his priority is to kind of educate people on the different cuisines from different regions. I'm so happy you brought up that um olivara sauce. I did get to finally order last week and that just brought me back to the time I had it at my lawless house <laughs> in the Philippines. Um, I haven't been to Zamboanga myself either, but what was interesting about that is, at least by the time I was growing up in the 90s in the Philippines, um, the the whole alavar sauce, as you were saying, the alige, which is crab fat uh, mixed with coconut milk and some other spices, that became really popular because there was a restaurant chain in Manila that started um, putting it on their menu. And so then it became like a special pasalubong or take home uh, present from anybody who went to Zamboanga. It kind of became this thing that if you go to Zamboanga and you don't bring it home as pasalubong to your family, you're like not a great family member <laughs> because everyone kind of expects that. Um, but yeah, the reason I got so excited about this was because even just the fact that that dish is something that a chef has put on his pop-up menu, I think really speaks to the fact that Toronto is at a certain place in terms of how Philippine cuisine is. Um, we're getting to that point where now we have, as you were saying, like it goes beyond just Filipino food as adobos, your sinigangs, your silogs, which are still a very big part of cuisine um, that we know. But yeah, it's just really exciting. I was really excited about that. <laughs> One of my favorite magazines, period, is a magazine called Spacing, and it's, you know, from Toronto. They've expanded quite a bit uh, to talk about other Canadian cities as well, but that particular magazine really focused at the beginning on what it's like to live in a city as big as this, um, where we have so many different neighborhoods, so many different types of industries where people are working in and obviously lots of different, such a big diversity of cultures that are literally making the city a, a big melting pot of tastes and sights and experiences. So I think I'm also approaching this from the fact that I'm really just, I'm, I'm very interested in observing how we move across the city. And um, yeah, it's just really interesting. So I was I wanted to kind of talk about these neighborhoods in the city that have a high concentration or a large population of people of Filipino descent. And I just wanted to kind of ask, um, what's your perspective on where 
people kind of tend to? For me, I have lived in numerous places around the city. So I lived by Dundas Square when I went to Ryerson and I stayed um, on res. Um, so there, like, you know, there's a good amalgamation of food. I, now there's like a jolly beer. Now there's a jolly beer. <laughs> which if that was there when I was in university, uh, that would have been so bad. <laughs> would have been stressed eating there all the time. Um, I was kind of in that university life. I think the first time I really ate Filipino food here was when I tried La Mesa, uh, which was on Queen Street uh, at that time, around like six years ago. And that was the closest Filipino restaurant to me in like kind of downtown core. Um, and then I moved to Sherborne Street, which is near St. Jamestown, or I guess it would be considered in St. Jamestown. Um, and uh, like that, I felt a lot more at home there food-wise because there was Howard Street that was near my apartment, which has a lot of, you know, kind of Filipino turuturo restaurants and also um, Tinuno. Uh, and so that was great for me because every time I was missing a home-cooked Filipino meal, I could just walk there and get some takeout because <laughs> um, I've never been able to replicate my grandma or my mom's <laughs> my mom's recipes as well as them uh, and so there I felt I, I really felt that like community um, you know especially when, even when I went to church there I felt that I was in an area that you know represented a lot of my culture um, I actually wanted to ask you, like, are there any kind of local festivals or events that you have attended in the past that kind of strike a chord with you? Uh, I've attended Cultura a couple of times, uh, and it was there where I was introduced to a lot of, you know, Filipino restaurants because they would have stands there as well, um, and also other Filipino groups, um, musicians that were in the community. So I think it's a really nice way to kind of get a map of what's happening in the city, especially in parts of the city that you might not be in. I know of Taste of Manila. Um, I've been there a couple of times as well. Um, um, what was really cool about Cultura, like as you said, is that it, it's it's an event. Like I, if I remember correctly, the last one or the, the second to last one that I remember going to, it was in the Regent Park area but it was in a new sort of community space. Uh, there was this community center there that had just opened. And so the uh, Cultura Festival was happening outside. Um, and I remember walking walking up there with a friend and it was the first time she had ever gone to any sort of Filipino-like event. And yeah, they had a stage for musicians and performances. There were some Kolintang performances. There was Pantayo who performed there. And it was a really great, like over the years for me, it became a really great introduction into the arts and culture of our community because it is kind of the main downtown Filipino like event. And of course, food was such a big part of that. Uh, you walk into the space, into the outdoor space, and you literally smell wafts of all these different things <laughs> as you're walking through it. Um, you know, savory things, you have bibinkas and rice cakes and 
Yeah, yeah. I remember one culture I went to was at Nathan Phillips Square, which was pretty exciting because, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal because that's, you know, City Hall here in Toronto. That's where they had um, the parade for the when the Raptors won the NBA finals. Like it's a <laughs> it's a huge space. So the fact that they had it there and like people walk, walking along Queen Street could just smell the food and just be like, oh, what's that? What's that happening there? And walk in and learn about the Filipino arts and culture was a pretty cool thing to see. Oh, another thing I wanted to add about events is, so I went to Ryerson and I I was a part of the Filipino Canadian Association at Ryerson. And there are, there's a group of associations, Filipino associations at different universities in Ontario. It's quite active. Yes, they're very, they're very <laughs> active. Like the, the whole group, I think, is called Filcasa. And so for Ryerson specifically, we, they'd host events. And at all of their events, they use food to entice people, obviously. <laughs> um, so, but a lot of times it wouldn't just be like, you know, chips and dip. They'd get, you know, lumpia, they'd get bansit, even like a whole lechon, like they've gotten a few times. Those were some of like my favorite events I've gone to, like smaller events. Um, and then also you're just in a community of, you know, Filipino students and, and young people, but also other, you can bring your friends who aren't Filipino um, to try the food and experience the culture as well. Going back quickly to the question of the groceries, um, where do you go in the city to get Filipino groceries? Where I live right now, uh, there isn't really like an Asian market or like a Filipino, even a Sari Sari store or something like that. I I basically just have to rely on Freshco and the one shelf <laughs> that they have of Filipino food. So they have like Mamacita seasoning packets. Um, there is Nations that's a little farther away from me, a little farther of a walk. Um, and then no frills, you know, they sell spam and corned beef and also some of the seasoning packets as well. That one that's near you actually nations is, um, I quite like going there. It's been a while since I went, but because they have just such a big, as the name suggests, the shelves are stocked with food from probably all the nations (laughs) like live in Toronto. I'm the kind of person who can spend hours in a grocery store and I definitely have there just like going around and it was really interesting to see like in the seafood and sort of fresh meat section a lot of cuts that I know are very familiar to Filipino cooking but you also don't see very often in a lot of the mainstream like grocery stores so again that's kind of just a nice little thing that I love about living in Toronto is that you don't necessarily sometimes have to go to a specific like Filipino grocery store while it's great to have them there I've often bought products in in Latin grocery stores and definitely in Chinatown a lot there. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting place to kind of have all of that um, accessible and there if you want and can get it. <laughs> yeah, well, what are your favorite Filipino dishes to, to cook during the pandemic? Uh, I have been eating a lot of tinola. Just because it's so, it's it's my comfort food. And if I'm kind of lazy and don't really want to think about what to do, it's a pretty nice uh, kind of easy meal to put together. Um, how, how about you? Have you been cooking quite a bit? Yeah, yeah. I've been trying to save money. I've been trying not to 
Uber Eats too much. That's the main thing for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've been I've been cooking, of course, a lot of sinigang and like caldereta as well. Um, so yeah, it's a it's been a good time to practice cooking like the Filipino dishes that bring me comfort. So. who's the current owner of Casa Manila Restaurant, pretty much a mainstay among Toronto's Filipino restaurant scene, as right by the 401 along Don Mills and York Mills, pretty big highway in the GTA. I remember the first time I visited, I was a student at Centennial College, which wasn't too far away. I ordered their crispy pata, and honestly, I didn't have Filipino food that much at the time, um, definitely not in my tiny little apartment, but I remember just enjoying that entire order of crispy pata by myself. It was so good. I'm, uh, I've been really excited to, uh, to do an episode that would focus on Toronto, not just in terms of the things that are really trending on social media. I wanted to step away from that and be able to um, kind of tell a bit more about the community and how the Filipino community has really grown uh, in the city over the last few decades. And um, a lot of my excitement, for example, with um, with going to a restaurant or ordering a Kamayan meal of some kind is very much tied to my nostalgia of those experiences kind of growing up. And I think one thing that I also would like to address with this episode is for a lot of younger Filipino people who uh, have grown up in and around the GTA, really the the food culture outside of the home is one of the easiest ways that they can kind of get their friends um, who are not Filipino as well to experience that sort of part of of themselves and of their culture. You know, my experience is very uh, much a parallel experience because I felt this way and uh, that you've described. However, the context was the 60s. And so it's a ve- it was a very different time. And uh, politically, there was, if you remember, that was, you know, Martin Luther King, John Kennedy. Uh, that was the era. And so uh, North America was really coming of uh, age and identity and defining who, you know, what makes up America, uh, including Canada and the United States. And um, we came here in the 60s. Uh, My mother was a single mother, and we didn't come to Toronto right away. We went to a a small farming community uh, just outside of London called St. Thomas. So it was uh, a town where... It was predominantly, I would say, almost 100% Caucasian. And uh, we were the colored people, the colored family who moved into town. My mother was uh, a a doctor, and uh, she worked at uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. And uh, so that was sort of the landing into Canada for me. And I felt very kind of ripped off because 
my mother did promise us a better life. And in the Philippines, we lived in a family compound. And uh, so I had my cousins around all the time. There was a lot of uh, activity and family. And uh, then to land in an apartment where you're in a cubicle and you don't know the people who are living around you. So I was always very excited to go to Toronto uh, because, uh, which was only two and a half hours away. And there was always an excitement to go because for my mother, it meant, you know, being with other Filipinos, uh, seeing uh, a more diverse community, but more importantly, I think it was because there were other Filipinos, and so we could, you know, really identify and and not feel so alienated. And it was an, it it almost became a you know every uh, every other weekend at first, and then we just couldn't get enough of it. It would be every week, and you know, where where there are Filipinos, there are parties at that time, right? And parties where you have you know the lots of food lots of music and lots of dancing like who wouldn't right and uh, so my exposure to Filipino food was through those parties and you know every so often when there wasn't a party uh, my mom knew you know had heard of uh, Filipino food uh, establishments uh, all turo turo Right? Because at that time, that's all there really was, was just the counter and, you know, the food is there. You just, they just scoop it up. And I really, as a child, wasn't too impressed with Filipino food because probably because, you know, at the parties, it sat there. And I thought that I was so super picky. But having been a child to take out my sorrow on food of being away from my motherland and my family, uh, food became a center of uh, focus for me. And And so eventually, Mila and her mom made a permanent move to Toronto. She's in her teens, and then a little bit after that, she says, she got a job and started working at this trendy little spot near Young and Bloor. And by that time, this is in the 70s, the nearby Yorkville neighborhood, which most people here know today as kind of this high-end shopping district, at the time, it was at the height of its sort of counterculture days, very much a hippie spot. It was basically the Greenwich Village of Toronto. You know, little coffee houses and bars and parks and these great intimate venues where musicians like Joni Mitchell and The Doors performed... Man, I would have loved to be there. That's the world that Mila moved into. I was uh, hanging around with, uh, at that time, I moved out very young, and I was working very young. And, uh, you know, my my area was around Young and Bloor. That's where I live today. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, you know where the Chick-fil-A is? Yes. (laughs) And uh, just down the street, uh, just south of Aldo's, was a store called Le Chateau. It was not on the, the across the street where it, where it moved to, but it was right on the corner of, corner of Hayden and Young Street. And that's where I worked because we finally moved there when I was 13. 
thank God, like I was so happy. And, <laughs> you know. So my area was Young and Bloor. And I worked in a particular retail establishment where it was the beginning of the, the disco days and the beginning of the gay movement, right? The very, very birth of the gay movement. So, you know, it would be very often we'd go dancing every night. And then after that, uh, we would uh, go eat and it would be a late night eating, which would be either Chinatown or it would be Bemelman's on Bloor Street. So that was sort of the brasserie kind of like Egg Benedict was my usual, you know, which was so exotic for me, you know, and, uh, you know, steak frites and, uh, or a pasta. And that was really my thing. And, uh, I think, uh, in between my mother always made it a point that we would go back to the Philippines. And so every five years. And so my, uh, Filipino food, uh, experience then was home cooking, but also my, my fun uncle, you know, he loved taking the cousins to Little Quiapo in Quezon City, right? Uh, that's where my family, my mother's side is from. And there is where I experienced, you know, Halo Halo, Maiz Cunyelo, uh, Pancit Palabok, right? It was in this little, uh, it's still around today. It's a real uh, kind of landmark historical. It is. I remember the restaurant being uh, like one of those places where you would go if you had a celebration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we would go there for the late night eats or the, you know, the little snacks and meriendas and stuff. And um, uh, so that's where I think uh, it, it, there was a spark, you know, for of my you know, falling in love with Filipino food. And, uh, but it was too brief. So I'd come back to my life and then I was working one day at Le Chateau. In a and then through a series of events, Mila found herself in the pageant world. This is back in the Philippines. And now she's competing for the title of Binibining Pilipinas. But at that time, I was already kind of after the pageant is when I really discovered the Philippines. and After that, because, well, she was still in her 20s and was seeing someone in Toronto, Mila decided to come back. She eventually got married, raised kids, grew a furniture business that expanded to several locations in Toronto. She studied theology, and through everything, she continued to visit the Philippines. Every year, though, the point is, there was the furniture show the fame furniture show. And it was uh, basically all of the, the suppliers from all over the Philippines, anything to do with home furnishings and accessories would show and the buyers would come. So it happened around my birthday and my birthday was in March. And I always hated the fact that it was cold and miserable and gray. And I would always uh, make sure I would attend those shows. And right after the show or before the show, I'd be in Burakai. <laughs> So I got my wish about having like uh, spending my birthdays or around my birthdays on a beach. And at that time, Burakai was a sleepy beach, no electricity at that time, if you can believe it. And, uh, you know, I, I discovered it because I was invited to Freddie Elizalde's home, the Bamboo Palace. And, 
you know, uh, and there was only one resort there in the whole beach strip, if you can believe it, one. And we always stayed there and I'd, we'd have this bamboo house, you know, made of bamboo, but it had air con and marble bathroom. And so this was every year. I would, you know, I did this every single year. The whole point of this part is because this time then I was like prepared to stay. And that is where my first taste of really experiencing true Filipino food, you know, a la carte, meaning cook to order, you know, in different settings, like the, the Kamayan restaurant was there. It was just new and, you know, nice restaurants. And also here I was, you know, and, and my choice became above because at that time they were also offering Italian, Chinese, you know, it was real cosmopolitan in the Marcos days, right? Because he was so open to foreign investment. And uh, that's when I said, wow, Filipino food rocks, you know, it really rocks. As you're sharing your experiences, um, there's really a number of formative sort of stages um, that have happened, (laughs) I guess. Yeah, because your question is, how did you get involved with making Filipino food? So I, I mean, I, I had to really trace it, and I have it written down. I had my furniture business from 1983 to the year 2000, which meant traveling to the Philippines once a year. That's when I discovered, you know, even more the love uh, for Filipino, not only food, but artistry, right? And uh, also... I discovered the beauty of the Filipino hospitality, you know, the beauty of Filipino everything. Here I was, you know, uh, uh, coming back and thinking to myself, okay, when is someone going to open a restaurant, you know, a Filipino restaurant, so I can enjoy it here, right? And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm thinking, gosh, if I had a Filipino restaurant, this is what I would do. I would make it a cultural experience. You know, I would, I would introduce it to the non-Filipinos because it's got a lot to offer. You know, so that sense of national pride really was building, you know, and it sort of, uh, it represents a lot. Let's just put it that way. And now, okay, backtrack, like 2009, I was on my way to the gym and I see Casa Manila right on the corner, York Mills and Don Mills. I'm saying, oh my gosh, you know, a Filipino restaurant. This is what I've been waiting for. It's right down the street. Three blocks is finally here. I just swerved right in there and I went in and I, I opened the door and it was like, I was disappointed. Because I said, where's the decoration? Because I have to remember I had furniture stores. Because it was a beautiful space, nice and big. And why is there, oh, my God, it's Turo Turo again. Okay, be open-minded. The food might be good. And then I, I started talking to the owner. We really connected because she was very God-centered, and she knew I was in business. So she started asking me for advice. And I would say, you know, maybe uh, why don't you put some, like, some Filipino decorations in here? so that it has more of a cultural identity, play Filipino music, right? And 
there's the Weston Hotel is is uh, across the street, and you're in a really good spot. This is a major uh, street, York Mills and Don Mills, and then uh, another friend who I met through the college, the the University of Toronto, like. She said, oh, I want to take you to a Filipino restaurant. And it's cost them, oh, my God, I've been there already. you. And then we came out, we started talking some more. And then um, the long and short of it was that I said, oh, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to Calgary. I'm going to be, uh, you know, looking at a business because, you know, I thought food. And then she goes, well, really, she goes, if you're interested in buying this, give me a, you know, like, we're why you're selling I, and then she goes yeah we're open you know it's like I go very early on I I knew that if I'm going to introduce Filipino food to people of other cultures I have to first start with the authentic so then and I said and how will I you know present it because I already had my ideas that I'm gonna you know it'll be more colorful you know, because I had seen enough turo turo. There's a lot of vegetables, for example, you know, in the Filipino, like lying, ginatansita, calabasa, pinakpet. There's so many, you know, uh, vegetables. And I would like to make it as healthy as possible, you know, by using natural ingredients freshly cooked. I wanted to showcase the artistry as well and play Filipino music. And what makes me really happy about doing this Toronto-based episode now in 2021 is really because even during the short time that mainstream Toronto uh, media started talking about uh, Philippine food and Filipino cuisine as this next big thing, the conversation seems to have even progressed beyond that in terms of now I just want to hear a variety of stories. Like I can go on about this for a while because (laughs) I think that there's just there's just not enough voices out there. What I discovered was there's a few reasons. There had been some people who wrote articles. I had my for my own opinion, like we ourselves as a people are not proud of our culture. We we have been so colonized that uh, it's ingrained in us that ours is not as is as not as good as the American culture. Everything but our own and. There was a phrase back then, oh, uh, we're just having Filipino food. So that you felt that when you had guests in the Philippines, that if you wouldn't serve Filipino food, you would serve chicken cordon bleu, you would serve, you know, um, uh, fusionized maybe, or uh, fettuccine Alfredo. And we were not proud, even though we ourselves were secret eaters of it. You know what I mean? Like we enjoyed it. <laughs> we enjoyed it ourselves, but you know, but to serve it to, let's say, uh, uh, someone of not the same Filipino uh, background, we would we we would hesitate to serve Filipinos. So we're just having Filipino food, and so there was a lack of national pride in our own culture, and and also the history of uh, being told that you're not as good because you're Filipino was sort of ingrained in us. And so we instead looked and we wanted to blend. That is our strength, but it's also a blessing, as they call a blessing curse, because we were not proud 
a proud people, but then we all have flags on our car, right? And it's not just those flags in the cars. There's lots of little things like that. Like the tiny boxing gloves with the Philippine flag that hangs in the dashboard of someone's car. Sometimes it's next to a rosary. It's getting tattoos of stuff that has to do with the Philippines, or maybe that little flag emoji that I definitely add to my social media posts. We love being Filipino, even though we shy away from parts of the culture sometimes. interesting dichotomy from my end and really kind of why I still do the show because it's going to be something that I'm going to talk about and wonder about for some time. Next we're talking with John Paul who owns and runs a shop called Escanita Foods. They're located at Young and Steel's about half an hour north of downtown Toronto. It's a busy intersection with a big Korean grocery, a no-frills, and a Canadian tire in that plaza. It's a very Canadian combo. I first visited the shop a few years ago after my friend Eric painted a mural inside the restaurant, and they hosted this like late-night party with an art battle and a DJ and endless like sticks of fish balls, isao, and kwek-kwek. I missed it so much. It was great. I missed eating that and the vibe of that place. It was so much fun. I was smoking at the time too, and I'd stepped out a couple of times with a few barbecue sticks in my hand, and I swear it felt so right. Not that far from what I probably spent most of my high school life doing. My name is uh, John Paul Abejo. Uh, I migrated here in Canada eight years ago, 2012. Yeah, and uh, I'm from uh, Tundo, uh, originally born and raised at uh, Tundo, Manila. Way back home, um, I just finished my uh, MBA degree. With uh, I just met my wife also through our uh, graduate school, and also uh, just working in a Chowking uh, restaurant. I've been there for assistant manager for at least three years, and I quit in the food industry and then I just go back to uh, retail as an assistant manager before I went here in uh, Canada. Do you have some friends and family also or did you kind of come here um, with you and your wife like by yourself? My mom and my dad uh, live in a, in a USA, in LA. Only my, my wife, relative, her mom and her dad is migrated in uh, Canada. I, I have no relatives here in Canada. So she migrated first with my son. And then, uh, yeah, we just uh, started here and, uh, you know, like other immigrants looking for a greener pasture. Yeah. I've been talking to some people who are uh, based in the States. And because in the States, Filipinos, especially in the West Coast, where uh, parents are the East Coast, so my LA sila eh. So I have a lot of relatives ko sa LA, uh, like uh, in a in a Diamond Bar in a Los Angeles area din po doon. 
So, but the thing is, you cannot uh, petition me kasi nga at my age. Different po kasi yung ano eh. Yung status doon para i-petition ka. Uh, I have a job naman and graduate na sa Philippines. And then, yeah. So, I have no plans talaga to going, you know, abroad. But yung wife ko kasi, uh, nandito kasi yung parents niya. Kaya, kinuha na rin ako na nag-migrate sila dito. I guess what's really interesting and what's parang different about Toronto is um, parang yung Filipino community dito sa Toronto really within 1990s or even 2000s, shakalang talaga lumaki. Mm, yeah, yeah. I still remember like a food like Jollibee. Before, when I went here in Canada, there's no Jollibee yet, right? Talaga mga, when I talk with my mom, you know, sometimes because my relatives ka going here in Canada, at sabihin ko, bili ka naman sa Goldilocks or sa Jollibee before you come here in Canada. <laughs> Just to try the food po, di ba? But now, look, di ba? There's a lot of Jollibee right now. Also here, near in my place, may Jollibee na. Further proof that this particular brand, for everything that it is and it isn't, is like a clear indication of Filipino settlement. People invest money into the franchise because, of course, they know we're going to gravitate towards Jollibee. How can you not? For me, besides the chicken, which is really my first love, fried chicken-wise, Jollibee just understands the Filipino psyche, like what makes us tick, and why stories about meeting your forever love or finding a new romance while you're waiting in line for a bucket of chicken. (laughs) Of course, that belongs in commercials made to sell fast food. Filipino people value relationships, and our relationship with that big ol' happy bee isn't going anywhere. The Jollibee example is so... uh, It's very relatable. Like It's very um, nostalgic for a lot of people who <laughs> grow up in the Philippines. Um, and I was going to say, that's the thing that I really like about uh, about your place, Skinita. Uh, because um, admittedly, it was quite some time ago that I uh, was able to go there. But uh, I remember when parang the smell of the food, tapos yung yung vibe ng uh, ng yeah, restaurant yeah, nyo, it's very chill, very relaxed, parang tatambay ka lang sa <laughs> may may tatambayan ka lang na place na maganda yung vibe and you have your friends around you. Yeah, so I I, I wanted to ask you, how did you build uh, Eskinita? Or how did it come come about? First, me and my wife po nagatid po kami ng mga food festival. Since like uh, last 2015, the first festival that we attend, yung Taste of Manila. So we're looking for a food na yung talagang uh, street food or Manila food talaga. So in 2016, ang Taste of Manila, so me and my wife decided na mag-join kami. So nag-come up kami yung uh, street food na talagang hinahanap namin. Yung, sa along University Belt, I don't know if you, ah, so you, belt, if you go in... <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, if you go in, uh, they call it hepa lane in joke, eh, diba? Like, uh-huh. meron mga kwek-kwek, yung mga fishbowl, diba? Name it, you know? Before, there's no rules like uh, only one dipping, eh. Dati, sige, kahit ano dipping. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, way back up uh, 2016, so me and my wife, uh, with my uh, father-in-law, with my mother-in-law as a family, we came up the plan, uh, okay, so we put, uh, we, we joined uh, Taste of Manila, we tried 
tingnan natin yung kung magkiklik. So yeah, uh, sa naman po ng Diyos uh, na natangkilik po naman yung ano yung uh, yung paninda namin and then uh, in-invite na po kami in different uh, food festival ng Filipino and Filipino event during this year. So yeah, the, we try 2017 na uh, food festival. We join na uh, Mississauga, yung uh, Taste of Philippines yun. Also in Hamilton, the Taste of the uh, Philippines. And uh, and uh, Taste of Manila and uh, the Scarborough. Marami eh, noong 2017. And all all the festival, uh, na-click naman po. Uh, sabi namin, siguro maybe it's a time to, we put a little shop, di ba, para to continue na kahit hindi festival. Eh, di ba, yung cravings ng mga Filipinong kababayan natin ay eh, magsasatisfy natin, especially sa mga street food. I asked about how they decided on what to call their business, so John Paul started by describing what was in the esquinitas, or narrow alleyways, that he knew. I grew up in Tundo. So sa Tundo kasi there's a lot of esquinita. And in those esquinitas, which by necessity, and even in the Philippine context, they function as the primary living and social spaces for people who live in these very densely populated neighborhoods, it's these outside spaces where a lot of everyday life happens. And naturally, that also means that a lot of food interactions take place there, a lot of buying and selling and consuming these different kinds of food that the people who live in those areas really rely on. Sa Eskinita, makikita mo there's a lot of different uh, street food. Like there's some simanong fishball. Sa gabi, si balot. Tapos may nagtitinda ng mga toron, mga, mga taho. So, yeah. So, that's why. And that imagery of the manong or of the seller over at his fishbowl cart that's like waist high with a single burner kalan and this big old kawali that's full of hot oil. Um, he sticks in your head. And then there's the man who yells, Balot! in the early morning as he walks around with this basket of like hot eggs covered in newspaper. There's the vendor who sells turon, which is basically a deep fried banana filled spring roll that's covered in caramelized sugar also probably beside their cart. There's the guy who sells taho, which is made of silken tofu in those surprisingly thin, like super warm cups that just fit in the palm of your hand with a little spoon to scoop out that tofu from the syrup that it's in. It's this brown sugar syrup called arnibal. And then you have these little pearls of sago, which are made from the starch of the sago palm, also called tapioca. That's what I think of when I think of street food. It's not just the thing you're eating, but it's all the other sights, the sounds, and the smells that make the place that you're eating it in just so entwined with the experience of consuming the food. And paying tribute to all that, John Paul says, was a big deal. So that's why we came up na name yung Eskinita. Saka during, you know, our uh, our college days, parang yung, Eskin, yung street food kasi, parang uh, 
it means like a simple way of uh, eating ng, uh, you know, ano sa Pilipinas, parang okay na sold na eh, di ba? And honestly, since we all talk about experiences these days, having those kinds of stories that are associated with the foods that you'd sell to a customer, it just makes sense to share. There really aren't many places around Toronto where you can buy a barbecued isaw, though my preferred kind, which is made from chicken instead of pork intestines, isn't something you can get in Canada. But pork blood, however, is available and apparently in high demand. Believe me, no. most of the customers, they, they coming as you know, pork blood. But because it really isn't easy to get exactly what they need from suppliers, especially these days, John Paul says it's also a big deal when Betamax arrives. Often for the weekends, they turn batches of pork blood into a grilled street food that's known as Betamax, basically a block of thickened, coagulated pork blood cut into hefty rectangles, That's the Betamax reference. (laughs) When it's perfectly charred, these like slabs of, I guess, kind of a blood sausage, really. When it's perfectly charred, it's piping hot with the burnt edges and the smell of everything else that's on the grill, little bits of fat kind of flaked from whatever else you're cooking onto the Betamax side of the grill. Man, I love this stuff. And with a quick dip in a tall jar of spicy vinegar with like chopped up onions and chilies that are kind of floating up at the top. Ah, the best. So pagka nakagawa kami ng pork blood, boom, you know, just only like a two days, one day, yeah. That's why sometimes we post, uh, we take a video live sa mga Instagram or in the Facebook. And I just can't get over it. Betamax on Instagram live. Kind of sounds like a Tito joke, but besides that, I really argue that it's a valid turn of events because if you think about the history and evolution of where coagulated blood, or Betamax, as a Philippine street food has come, it's gone all the way to Canada and into our digital feeds. During pandemic last year, so first month, we don't know what to do. Of course, we have a cost like monthly expenses and Good thing, uh, you know, like, hindi ka talaga pababayaan ng uh, government ng Canada kasi after two weeks, nagbigay sila ng mga relief program to help us. And napaka-importante doon sa community, community ng Filipino, like we have. Sometimes they went there just to say, Hi, Kuya John, hi, ate, hi, ano po. How are you doing? You know, just, you know, just even just buy a small thing, just para sabihin lang, how are you? So, it's a big You know, it's big uplifting for us, eh? Motivate us to continue. We can't not talk about desserts this episode. Because I gotta say, the scene in Toronto is legitimately good. So there's a couple folks I want to give a quick shout-out to. Last month, there were these pints of ube letik and maiz con yellow ice cream from a shop called Ruru Baked. She's in the news all over town. You could even buy a slice of biko, which is a sweet rice cake, to go with the ice cream, and you could opt to buy a handmade banig to take with you to the nearby park and, you know, take your picture-perfect park hang. There's a shop called Tito Parley's. They make these epic Sun cakes and the best Silvana cookies. 
honestly, almost at the level of Conti's. That's a popular bake shop in the Philippines. Then there's also a brand called Adobar. They make this 22-layer chocolate mousse. Man, that stuff is good. There's a shop called The Night Baker, which is not too far from where my sister lives now in the Little Italy neighborhood. They make these ube and queso cookies, very much on trend with the whole ube cheese thing that everyone in the Philippines loves. There's a business called Made by Marie, um, and she makes these delicate macarons in a rainbow of colors and flavors like white rabbit, buko pandan, calamansi, and mango. I'll have links to all of these in the show notes because, well, who wouldn't want to indulge in all of this? One of these amazing cake makers is Shannon Nokos, who runs a pop-up project called Quanta. Her cakes come in a few key styles. Classic piping, patchwork, pointillism, floral, fringe, and vegan cakes. They're all beautiful, all striking and unique. You definitely need to see them. So I asked Shannon if she could tell us about her family's history in Toronto, and how she came to cooking and baking, and why she thinks Toronto is a great place to be for anyone who's interested in Filipino food and culture. My parents came to Canada in the mid to late 80s, and they actually met out here. Like, they didn't know each other um, back home, so they actually have, like, separate um, starting stories. My mom, I believe, was sponsored by her aunt um, to be the caregiver of, of her aunt's kids. And my dad was actually a, he like worked on a ship. He was like a crew member on a cargo ship that actually was meant to dock in Detroit. Um, but when he had got into Hamilton, they had to like stop because there was like a blizzard or something that day. So um, they couldn't like proceed further into the Great Lakes. And so he ended up here by fluke, actually. So yeah, he has like a really cool origin story. Um, We always say that like, he should have a biopic about him. And yeah, so they met at one of their first jobs out here, they were both working at I think it's like a basket manufacturer or like a basket weaving company that imports like woven goods for like flowers and like souvenirs and stuff like that. And so it's actually cute. They met at work and I think it was my mom who brought like a fish, like fried fish for lunch for her ball and um, she shared it with my dad. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the rest of that is history, I guess. Um, but in terms of, you know, making a name for themselves within the Filipino community, I would say like, they're probably the two most hospitable people that I know. We are constantly inviting and trying to help our family or extended family, family friends from the Philippines to move out here. And Uh, My parents have been so amazing in, you know, providing the help and the shelter um, that immigrants need when they first come here. 
I want to pause for a second to talk about the importance of these kinds of informal support networks that very much exist within immigrant communities beyond traditional social services. To most Filipino people, that desire to extend help to someone that you identify with, whether it's a family member or another newcomer to town, it resonates really strongly, and particularly for people in the diaspora who share these specific experiences of living in a certain place, it means a lot to do it together. Winter in Hamilton, for example, would have been really difficult to navigate, I imagine, um, as a newcomer without support from someone else who's been through winter in Canada. Um, so our house is like always full. Um, I don't even know how many families have lived with us. We like have our basement finished kind of for like this purpose to be able to like invite people to stay with us if they need it. But yeah, like this goes back for probably since I was a baby and even till this day, even through COVID, you know. And so I think that our family history is to kind of pay it forward. You know, my parents have, they had a rocky start out here and as their success grew, they wanted to be able to share that with their friends and family back home and give them that same opportunity that they were given when they first started out. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that it is a continuously evolving history. Um, growing up, Filipino food was pretty much the only food that we ate, unless it was like a birthday or, or some special occasion where we would go to like Swiss Chalet <laughs> then we'd like, you know, eat quote unquote, like outside special food. But um, for the most part, we were eating Filipino food for all meals. And my parents loved entertaining. So on the weekends, we would always have people over and, you know, they would do like their best cooking on the weekends. And even to this day, like my dad has a designated spot in our backyard where we like set up bricks and um, we have like a, a half barrel container for making lechon. My dad has this motorized spit and we have the half barrel for the coals and he'll make lechon and lechon manuk on, you know, special occasions like birthdays or Easter. And that's like a portable spit. So he'll bring that with him to these like Filipino association camping trips. And you'll just see like a group of Filipinos in this random Ontario provincial park roasting a pig <laughs> um and so filipino food has always been something ordinary but also something special in our family in our household you know we really mark occasions with the type of food that we make and so with all of this entertaining that my parents do and and did especially in the past I couldn't help but get involved in it. And so one of my first memories, and even going to culinary school, I wrote this in my admissions paper. One of my fondest memories growing up is making kanilao with my dad, you know, going to the Asian grocery store in the mornings on a Saturday and picking up the fish and picking up the veggies and all the things that go into it and the vinegar and, and the chilies and, you know, bringing all that stuff home. And I would be in charge of pulsing the garlic and the ginger in the food processor and 
um, my dad would deal with all of the fish and trimming the fish and cutting it up and he would explain the process to me and you know especially with canila which is essentially like a ceviche where it is raw fish cooked with the acid that it's being dressed with so in this case it would be vinegar you know he would like show me the chunks of the fish meat and he would like squeeze it with vinegar and it would go from being translucent to gradually opaque and that process always amazed me and we would like mix it all together and then you know by the time we were done it would be like four in the afternoon and you know we would have to start we have to clean up and start to get ready for the guests to arrive so you know that was like a really fond memory and I think that was like one of those reoccurring experiences because we would do that quite a bit um, because they were entertaining so often um I think that Toronto is an interesting place for enjoying Filipino food and learning about our culture because, you know, Toronto is notorious for being this melting pot of different ethnicities and different immigrants coming together. And, you know, it's a really great place to explore different types of foods. But, you know, if you dissect it a little bit further, especially within the Filipino community, there are so many of us and there are so many of us from different places within the philippines my parents alone speak four different filipino dialects and that's just within one family so it's really interesting to see that and see but then see that multiplied within our community every region kind of has their different way of doing things and we're seeing that a lot in our food and what we have to offer in different Filipino restaurants and different Filipino establishments. I think what's also really interesting is that we are seeing a lot of young Filipino chefs and cooks and restaurant owners who have worked in these upscale restaurants or you know restaurants that offer contemporary or quote-unquote modern cuisine and they're learning like learning through experience and through different mentors on different cooking techniques and it's really cool and really interesting to see those techniques being applied to traditional Filipino cooking you know the flavors are pretty much the same and the ingredients are pretty much the same but it's nice to see it um, done with different techniques and yeah I think that Seeing that happen in the city is really important, especially in the early stages, because, you know, the goal is to have Filipino cuisine a little bit more mainstream. And I really think that that's starting to happen now in the city. the city back to Hamilton, about an hour west of Toronto, Filipino pop-ups are happening too. And I learned about one called Pamana Kitchen. Uh, my name is Gabriel Cruz and I am the chef operator of Pamana Papa Kitchen in Hamilton, Ontario. I do this pop-up business with my little brother Rowan Cruz. 
he went to George Brown for pastry and my mom Rowena Cruz who's you know just my mom and she's one of the best cooks I've ever met in my entire life when it comes to Filipino food anyways. Pamada is a uh, pop-up that happens uh, once a month. Basically what we do is take away meals. People come in, pick up their meals, go home, reheat it, and then um, they enjoy the food. The menu changes every month depending on the season and what we feel like cooking. The menu usually just kind of, you know, goes with what, what I grew up eating and, you know, the flavors that I know and that my mom has taught me. And this is also a project for myself to um, rediscover my roots through cooking and, uh, you know, maybe learn a thing or two. We moved here when we were in uh, 1995. Man, I think it was 1995. It was a long time ago. We have family here in Hamilton, so we stayed with them for a little bit. We moved to like me and my five brothers. I actually have five brothers. Um, I have a twin brother. We went to three different schools uh, and moved to three different houses. It, it was kind of hard to fit in for a little bit, but like it was actually it wasn't really that hard because like, you know, like we were still kids and we didn't really know what was going on, but we just knew that we were in a different country and, you know, it gets cold, it gets hot and snow was great. And, uh, you know, we were just trying to uh, kind of fit in. And uh, we did because, you know, you're kids and it's it's kind of easy to fit in. Um, and then after that, we uh, went to local high school here, uh, went to Niagara College. My dad uh, was a uh, computer. He was in, in a computer. So he worked for Canon for the Philippines in a long time. And he kept on going to Spain and all over the world to work for Canon computers. And when we first got here. He started working at Staples in Brantford. It was, he didn't like it at all. Um, uh, my mom was a uh, animator, a freelance animator in uh, in the Philippines, and then we came here, and and she was still kind of doing that. And then she got into a lot of farming. She's done a lot of things. Uh, my mom, uh, you know, and she's very inspirational to myself and my brothers, and same with my dad. They, you know, they held us together and. And, you know, made us the people that we are. Um... And I want to take a second to say that this kind of story of professionals from the Philippines arriving in Canada with credentials for the field that they're in, but little actual job prospects because they don't have that all-important Canadian experience. I remember that being a huge thing for my generation of migrants, I guess, who saw that their parents work their way back up the ladder to find work that would suit their qualifications. Definitely not easy, and there are many people who still experience this very real barrier. I've worked at so many kitchens all over the world, learning European and French cooking and stuff like that. You know, I, I didn't really think about Filipino food till about uh, like a few years ago, and you know, like I. Um, started looking at like restaurants in the Philippines and stuff like that and there was this one restaurant that really really caught my eye and it's called Toyo Eatery in Makati City and um, I thought what they were doing was really cool like you know I've, I've always wanted to do something like that and um, I never thought about it with Filipino food and then I thought what they were doing was crazy and then all of a sudden I started reading all these articles in the Philippines and how like food is progressing like how all these like young chefs and chefs my age are just like really really killing it 
And I, I thought to myself, maybe I can do that here. You know, like it, it will be a little harder because we don't have the same ingredients or, you know, some of the same vegetables, some of the same suppliers. Like it, it's, you know, like some of the ingredients are very authentic. But at the same time, I think it would be pretty cool to take the center of Filipino food, bring it to Canada and like try to, you know, kind of do Filipino food with the ingredients that we have here and do our hardest to like, get that together so I thought that was really cool and it was also something that was very foreign to me at the same time because I only knew about my mom's cooking and I think that's why we we started come on and that's why I started to like really wanted to get involved you know in, in Filipino food is because cooking is pretty much all I know and the only way for me I feel like to express how much I want to learn about this and how much I want to grow as a person, as a Filipino. And, you know, just pay respects to my mom and everything that she's done to us. And I was actually like, get really good at this and maybe hopefully, you know, do something about it here in, in Canada. And then, and uh, hopefully it takes off, you know. That's one of the reasons why I'm doing this is because I want to find my identity as a Filipino in the best way I know how, and that's and that's cooking. Toronto GTA area has a really big uh, Filipino community. Like there's like so many like patches of Filipinos all over the place. Like even in Hamilton, growing up, we've met a lot of Filipinos here, and like we played PBA. We met kids from Toronto and stuff like that. So like they're here, and we're here, and I feel like um, if people like myself and other young next generation Filipino cooks who just want to step up and take inspiration from the Filipino restaurants back home and then take that drive and take that progressiveness and take that inspiration from uh, their country for, uh, to, from their mothers, from, from their grandmothers, from recipes handed down from different Filipino chefs before them and like, you know, create their, yeah, their identity. And, you know, like, I feel like, Filipinos chefs like myself and I know there's a bunch of other young Filipino guys out there that are doing pretty cool Filipino food you know like we feel like Toronto will be very accepting of what we want to do and what we want to what we want to achieve uh, and then take this level of Filipino food and Filipino dining that people know about right now and kind of elevate it to like the the standards and a level that like it is over there at the philippines and i feel like being here in this area alone a lot of people will be accepting of what we're trying to do and stuff like that so watch out for uh, any info and in our instagram accounts at pamana kitchen and uh yeah look us up please try us out thank you so much for listening and uh salamat po Warmest, sincerest thanks to our guests for this episode. Isabel Docto, Nila Naborco Achon, Jean Paul Abejo, Shannon Ocos, and Gabriel Cruz. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your stories with us. From food festivals to restaurants, from street food to desserts and pop up kitchens, all of these are things you're going to find if you ask about Filipino food in Toronto today. 
Our theme music is by David Seste, segment music is by Eric and McGill, Blue Dot Sessions, and Podington Beer. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you told a friend, maybe shared it on social, or send me a quick note. I'm all for email, you guys. Head <laughs> to exploringfilipinokitchens.com for past episodes. Send an email to exploringfilipinokitchens at gmail.com. Follow the show with the same handle on Instagram for the latest updates. I'm going to be doing some events and classes on Zoom too in the near future, which I hope you're going to join me for. Until then, maraming salamat, and thank you for listening.